Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast. I'm Vas Christodoulou. This week's guests, Professor Sarah Gilbert and Dr. Catherine Green, are the vaccinologists who led the development and manufacture of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. They joined Robin Ince for a How To Academy livestream, telling their story and answering questions from the live audience. Their new book, Vaxers, is out now, wherever good books are sold. Now, I wanted to go right at the start. There's a, a, a wonderful story, uh, Kath, where you talk about being, uh, you're, you're out camping, waiting to, for a pizza. And you have an experience. I wanted to start on this because you had a moment where you talked to someone who just started to say, oh, I'm worried about this vaccine because of them and what they do. And you had a moment of basically saying, well, I am them. Uh, and I had a chance. To, and I wondered how you have felt about the ability of, of being able to communicate to people that this idea that people who uh, develop vaccines are some kind of, you know, dystopian image of, su- of some ogre. Have you found that this discussion has got better in the last few months, especially as the vaccine rollout's been happening? I think it, it has. So, yes, yeah, so this was back in late July, early August last summer, and I'd managed to get a weekend away with my daughter to Snowdonia, peace and quiet, beautiful, tranquil, thinking I'd have a couple of days off from the stresses that were filling my daily life at that time. And the lady in front of me was just iterating some of the perhaps more strange conspiracy theories that were circulating at that time. And, and, and I got the feeling that, yeah, one of the things that she was concerned about was that she didn't know, she didn't have knowledge about who was making the vaccine, how is it made. She didn't have a, a, a solid foundation which would put her fears to rest. So I, I just stepped in and said, hi, I'm Kath. Um, I know you're saying you don't know what's in the vaccine. You don't know how it's been developed so quickly. But weirdly, I am the right person in the world to tell you that because it was my team that actually made it, that first dose that went into a human being. I can tell you exactly what's in it and I'm happy to try and explain that to you. And that perhaps planted the seed that Sarah and I maybe could do something in order to try and and get the information out to the public in an accessible form of who we are, what we did, so that people can make their own informed decisions. I think that's all we can ask, isn't it? That when things are new, we explain them well, and scientists have a duty to do that. Well, you do explain it well. It's it's very interesting. And I I wondered from your perspective, Sarah, as well, has there been a problem with the fact that actual platforms for evidence-based thinking, for being able to deliver this, that there perhaps aren't enough 
broad platforms that sometimes the news media is driven by things which are are, are clickbait rather than evidence-based thinking yeah i think there's a lot of pressure uh, in trying to get information across in a very very short form and then shorten it even further to, to give a headline so we do try to give interviews where we talk about the science behind what we do but some of them are necessarily quite short um and then we felt we wanted to write something that really told the whole story because it needs a bit more time to give the background, to explain who we are, what we do, how we were able to go quickly and what actually happened last year. Um, and that's why we we started on the book. You, you, you say quite early on that back in March 2020, you know, that that was in some ways where, you know, then there was a race to find a vaccine. But you also say that in some ways you felt in another way the race had been lost. Well, we were, there was times of stress when we could see the pandemic growing and we weren't there yet with getting the project. And of course, all the way through until, I mean, later in the summer, we had no idea whether the vaccine that Sarah had designed was going to work. We knew we'd be able to make it. We knew we'd be able to trial it, but we didn't actually know because it's science. Yeah, you don't know the answers until you get the answers. So there were a lot of stressful times when we could see this disease taking off around the world and we didn't know whether our vaccine or anybody else's vaccine were going to be effective. So that was I mean, that was tough. It was tough for all of us, yeah? We were all in the same boat at that time. I, when I was on James O'Brien on end of April, he said, I which is the day we started the first clinical trial in Europe, he said we brought a ray of hope, but it really was only hope. We were hopeful. We were confident as far as we could be, but we didn't know this was going to work, remember? Are you still surprised by the? I remember talking to someone, I think it was, was April last year, who uh, was based up at the Crick Institute, and they said, you know what, maybe by December we'll have something that is about a 50% that, that it'll be about as effective. And, and then when I spoke to him, you know, towards the end of the year and spoke to other people, it seemed there really was, in terms of a, a success story, this does seem quite remarkable. It has been very successful. Um, we're now getting um, what we call real-world effectiveness data. So that's not the data that comes out of clinical trials. It's the data that comes out of using the vaccine across the population in real-life situations, starting from people who are over the age of 80, because they were the ones who got it first. And so we started to see that a single dose of the vaccine, either the Pfizer or the AstraZeneca vaccine, was keeping 80% of 80-year-olds out of hospital. And that's just with the first dose. And then it improves after the second dose. And so there's a lot more data now showing really good efficacy, sorry, effectiveness when it's real world data against um, the Delta variant, for example. And, you know, Public Health England keep updating all of this. And it's very, very effective. And we're very pleased to see that in the real life situation, because there's always a bit of a concern that you're testing vaccines in healthy people in clinical trials and it's going to make it look good. And then when you actually start using it widely, it just won't be that useful. But actually, it's it's proving to be very effective. All, all the vaccines that have been licensed in the UK are showing really good effectiveness. I, I was interested as well in the book, you talk a little bit about the fact that, you know, sometimes people will say to you, why didn't you see this coming? And you talk about the fact, well, we did. And I'm, I'm fascinated in knowing the, the process when you're working on so, because this wasn't, you know, you, you, you've been working on so many different vaccines at, uh, at any one time for different illnesses, uh, for different expected outbreaks. How do you map in terms of going, this is what we need to prioritise if there isn't a major outbreak at a time? So, what we've been working on for quite a long time 
is a technology that we can very quickly use to make a vaccine against any different virus that we need a vaccine for. So working on vaccines against outbreak pathogens was what I was doing previously. So things like Ebola, although I wasn't personally leading the, the Ebola vaccine work, but I did contribute to some of it. Um, other diseases like Lassa fever virus that causes a lot of cases in West Africa. Um, that's quite important because it results in deafness in, in a, quite a large number of people who recover from that infection. Nipah virus um, in Bangladesh and in India, very high fatality rate. Middle East respiratory syndrome, which uh, spreads in Saudi Arabia. There's also a very big outbreak in South Korea, huge economic impact. So if you're going to make vaccines against lots of different diseases, it's not cost effective to start from scratch each time and you know, take each disease in turn and say, well, how are we going to make a vaccine against this one? What we want to do is have what we call a platform technology. That's a way of making vaccines where we spend a lot of time developing the technology. How do we make it? Uh, what dose do we use? How do we store it? All of those kind of things. And then we can just adapt that to make a vaccine against any of these different viruses that we want to. And it also means that when we have to make a vaccine against a new disease that we haven't encountered before, we can go quickly because we've already done so much of the work just developing the technology itself. So that saves a huge amount of time. Because that's one of the things, Kath, that fascinates me is seeing how different the reaction can be in the 21st century than before we were able to. I mean, I mean, it, it, I was fascinated to find out that you know you don't need a sample of the virus. Yeah. So can you run us through that? So that's the joy of the method that Sarah and, and other scientists at the Jenner have been developing over the last 10, 20 years even, yeah, um, is that we need somebody to have got a sample of the virus in the world because you need to understand its genetic code. But once somebody has isolated the virus from a patient and decoded it, they can just email the sequence to Sarah and she can use that to design a vaccine. So she can just take, because she'd been working on the MERS vaccine, so that's another coronavirus, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, and has got really great, I mean, all of publicly available um, data on, on clinical trials using that vaccine on the same platform. So the CHADOX1, Chimpanzee Adenovirus at Oxford 1 platform. So Sarah and Tess knew what they were doing, knew what they needed to do, just needed the code. And once they've ordered the code, then... A little bit of um, manipulation of that code to get it into the sequence inside the laboratory, and then it hands over to me for the manufacturing. Brilliant, and um, and and Sarah, I wonder, but perhaps we can go back a bit. And just first of all, one of the things I think often surprises people is finding out that a virus is not a living thing. Can you explain how a virus works? So, in a situation like this, what is going on inside a body? Well, a virus has some of the characteristics of living things, but not all of them because we do sometimes call, talk about killed viruses, killed viral vaccines. So by definition, they would have to be um, live in the first place. So it's, it's a question of how you use the word. But a virus can't reproduce itself um, on its own or even with the help of another virus. So a virus is, is basically a piece of genetic information. It can be DNA or sometimes viruses are RNA. Our genetic information is all in DNA, but sometimes viruses use RNA instead. And then that piece of genetic information is packaged up inside a, a shell of protein, um, which protects the, the DNA or the RNA and allows it to get inside a cell. And so the viruses that infect humans need to get inside human cells in order to make more copies of themselves. And once they get inside a human cell, the genetic material comes out of the protein shell that's around it 
and then it starts to make more copies of the genetic material inside the human cell. And then it uses the machinery inside the human cell to make more copies of the protein coat that it needs. And then it assembles itself into lots more copies of the virus. So viruses don't grow and divide. Viruses infect a cell, they make more copies of the genetic material that results in making more copies of the protein that surrounds the virus. And then it assembles into lots more copies of itself and then bursts out of that cell. And then all of those new viruses can go on and infect more cells in the same person, causing the spread of the disease through the body. Or they might, if it's a respiratory virus, be breathed out or sneezed out, and then they can go and infect somebody else. So what's actually going on in terms of what one of the things I found interesting is with people I've spoken to who've had COVID is the variety of symptoms that many people have had. You know, one friend of mine just said his hands felt like they were on fire for two, for two weeks. And it was just a, and, and it is this common of, of many viruses that there is such a variety of different reactions to it? Or is this something in terms of within things within the coronavirus where we will see these uh, wildly various symptoms? It's not uncommon to have lots of different reactions to the same virus because the, the symptoms that we get after viral infection are not necessarily just down to the virus itself. A lot of it comes from our immune system responding to that virus. So when we get a fever after a viral infection, that's because our body's immune system's kicked into uh, response mode and we get a fever as a result of that. And some of the other symptoms we get, some of the more serious ones can actually when, be when the immune system goes off off course a bit and starts attacking parts of the body in a way that's obviously not very helpful. And with coronavirus, which is quite a complex virus, it's not one of the simplest ones, there does seem to be quite a lot of this redirecting of the immune system in ways which then attack the body instead of attacking the virus. So you can get lots of different responses because it's, it's, it's to do with ourselves and our own genetic makeup, how we respond to viruses, as well as to the virus that we're making that response to. And then, Kath, so when you start working on uh, a vaccine, what, what is the model that you work on? What is the starting point? Because I know there's also various different forms of, of, of vaccine as well. So, yeah, you can make vaccines in very traditional ways that have been made for hundreds of years or in the modern ways that we make them today. And so traditionally, you would take the pathogen itself. So in this case, you would take SARS-CoV-2 pathogen and grow it in the laboratory and find a way to make it safe by killing it, by inactivating and using that as the vaccine. And we have vaccines that are made in that way still today. But figuring out how to isolate and grow a new dangerous pathogen safely and then inactivate that safely takes a lot of time and therefore might not be the ideal thing to attempt in a pandemic scenario. You can also make vaccines by just using the protein shell that Sarah was talking about. So you could make the protein itself, which won't be infectious, and so it's going to be a very safe vaccine. You can manufacture that in E. coli, say, and use that as a vaccine. So you can have protein-based vaccines. And then, of course, you can use these more modern technologies, which are the mRNA vaccines, which turned out, of course, to be incredibly effective. So that's the Pfizer vaccine, which is delivering instructions to your cells so that you make a little bit of the coronavirus for your immune system to recognize called the spike protein. And the Pfizer and the Moderna mRNA vaccines do that by delivering mRNA code wrapped up in a package that means it's deliverable to your cells. And ours is an adenovirus vector vaccine, and that works in a, in a similar way. 
it delivers a DNA code to your cells, but the, the vaccine itself is a virus, a harmless, inactivated virus incapable of copying itself, but using very much the same strategy as Sarah talked about with how a virus itself works because it is an inactivated virus. So our vaccine is a delivery mechanism. It delivers a little bit of coronavirus code to your cells who then make the spike protein which triggers your immune responses. And because we're delivering code, it's very easy to do that, as Sarah said, to re-engineer that to a to use it for a different pathogen. So to use it against rabies or to use it against plague or to use it against Nipah or to use it against a new emerging pathogen. And it's relatively fast to do. And because the manufacturing step is going to be the same for all of those vaccines that we would make because they're all inactivated or replication incompetent adenoviruses, you manufacture them in the same way, whether it's a vaccine against a new pathogen or against Nipah or MERS or rabies the manufacturing process is the same. So that also saves us a lot of time. We don't have to figure out how to make it next time. Now, you mentioned the mRNA there, and that is one of those things which I, I'm sure people who've ended up having kind of to-dos on social media may well have had that experience where people say, but that's not a real vaccine, so it doesn't count as a vaccine. So there seems to be this strange... I suppose it's that, is it because people still imagine, they, they look back and they imagine, well, there was cowpox and smallpox, and that's how it's done. And that this is the, one of the first times that people have actually heard about the levels of technology that are being used in these new ways of combating viruses. So another type of vaccine that we use is what's called the live attenuated vaccine. So vaccinivirus, the smallpox vaccine, is, is a live attenuated vaccine. It's very close relative of smallpox, but it doesn't give you the severe disease. But what that vaccinia vaccine is doing that we don't need to use anymore because smallpox has been eradicated that is a virus that's taking code into your cells to produce proteins that look very much like the proteins in the smallpox virus so that your body makes an immune response against it. So this is nothing new. When Jenna started immunising people with cowpox, which we, it's a long story, but we ended up using something called vaccinia, he's doing the same thing. He's giving people a viral vaccine which takes the genetic code inside their cells and inside their cells you get the production of the proteins that you get the immune response against. mRNA vaccine just does it in a slightly different way. It's not a whole virus. It's just a piece of genetic information encoding one protein, the, the spike protein of the coronavirus in this case. And instead of being packaged in protein, it's packaged in a little bubble of lipid or fat. But it's essentially achieving the same thing. So going back to the very beginnings of vaccinology, the same thing was happening. I think people get a bit confused sometimes between... Um, vaccination and gene therapy and um, you know say that whenever you're transferring in a gene that's gene therapy but these are these are genes that are only there for a very short amount of time the messenger RNA doesn't hang around for more than a few days the viral vaccines that we use don't hang around for very long either there's no lasting impression there's no you know the genetic material doesn't stay in your body so if you're trying to do gene therapy to transfer a gene into somebody to replace a defective gene that they have. That's a very different situation there. You, you want the genetic material to stay long term because it wouldn't be very effective gene therapy if it only lasted for three days. Uh, but vaccination isn't gene therapy and the genetic material doesn't stay around for, for very long after the point of vaccination. Right. And that's and that now I, I would like to know from because you have this lovely way in the book of of 
the way that you describe how things are created and, and understood, which is something that you can then very easily connect with everyday life. And Kath, you talk about the fact that the, the, the way that a vaccine, basically you, you give us the recipe as such mm-hmm. of, of the five steps of how to make the, and is it adenovirus or? No, people pronounce it in all kinds of different ways. I call it adenovirus. But adenovirus, I'm going to go with that then. If adenoids, it was originally identified in an adenoid. Can you run us through those five steps from the very first stage of, uh, of, of creating it? You have to take the, the code that Sarah and Tess have designed that is going to tell you what the, what the vaccine is going to look like. And the first thing we need to do is we need to get that inside a human cell because our vaccine is a virus. And so it can't copy itself outside of a human cell. So in my lab, we have very special types of human cells that grow in flasks. And they're they're special because they contain an extra gene. They contain a gene that you and I don't have called E1. And that's a gene which has been removed from the chimpanzee adenovirus. So the vaccine is based on an adenovirus which is isolated from chimpanzees. But in order to make sure that that can't cause an adenovirus-like symptoms, which might give you colds or a sore throat or some GI tract problems, we've removed a gene, Sarah and her team have removed a gene from that chimpanzee adenovirus, so it can't work anymore. So the only way to make more copies of the adenovirus is to provide it with that gene, E1. So we need, first of all, to take the code, which is a DNA, pure DNA, and get it inside a human cell. And then it's going to undertake that process that Sarah talked about, copying itself lots of times and then making its own protein coat and then self-assembling into more virus particles. And those virus particles are our vaccine. They can only do that in these special cells that I have in my lab. They can't do that in the cells of your body. So then I can take those virus particles, which have been formed inside the cells in the laboratory, purify those, put them into a larger vessel of cells, and then that process will go again. They will infect the cells, they will copy their genetic information, they will make protein coat, they will self-assemble, and then we will purify them. So you have to insert the DNA into cells, you have to let the vaccine self-assemble, then you have to purify the vaccine away from the stuff that's in the cells that you don't want. So we burst the human cells open, we throw away all the stuff that used to be in the cells. So we've just got pure virus particles, which are our vaccine. Then we formulate it. So we put it into the right kind of salty water so that it's stable. We can store it in the freezer and it's safe to put into your arm. So a little bit of preservative and some salts to keep those virus particles happy because they're the vaccine. And then we just put it into the vials and it's good to go. So we're using human cells in the laboratory as micro factories that assemble these virus particles, which are harmless when they get put into your arm because they can't copy themselves in your arm. But in my lab, they can copy themselves. And because of that process, that's an exponential process. I can make a tiny bit of that vaccine at at high quality in my team. And then I can ship that around the world as a seed stock. I refer to it in the book as a starter culture because there are a lot of baking analogies in the book because we were all in lockdown and every weekend the only way I saw my mum was to do zoom baking sessions so we baked every Sunday so I had baking on my mind so you can take the starter of the vaccine and I can ship that to a company in Italy that helped us make more I can make more in my lab in Oxford. We can ship it to AstraZeneca and they can make large quantities of it. And then we can ship that around the world now to the manufacturing sites, 20 of them in total that AstraZeneca are manufacturing the vaccine. 
So every dose of AstraZeneca vaccine that's in anybody's arm anywhere originated in about a pint of colourless liquid that we held in our hands in early March 2020 here in Oxford. And that's then seeded the production of everything globally. That's remarkable. I love that. I the uh, I, I do. I just as you explain that, and then as you think, I mean, for you, for both of you, I presume there must be moments where, when you start to think of the ramifications of that work and of the you know the, the number of people that have been vaccinated, it must have quite. Uh, I suppose is is it a humbling effect on you, or or just that sense of what human achievement, the possibility, what you have both managed to achieve in a situation with an incredible amount of stress and also Sarah as you talk a lot about in in the book as well with the 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 perpetual problem of trying to get finance of trying to you know that people don't realize that how much science is going to meetings and hoping to get some form of grant or other yeah it I mean it's something that we plan to do for years working in vaccine development against outbreak pathogens this is always something that you know we were aiming to get to where we made a vaccine and it got used and it and it helped people. And to be honest, I was really thinking about viruses that cause outbreaks um, that, can, you know, fairly limited localized outbreaks, maybe one country might spread to a few countries. We weren't really planning for a pandemic and for a pandemic, you know, everything has to go much faster and you need lots more doses and worldwide manufacturing to try to get everybody vaccinated. Um, but it was always where we were trying to get to. And you're right that we weren't as prepared as we could have been because we'd failed to get funding for things that we'd asked for in the past. And if we got that funding, we would have been much better prepared. It would have been great if we could have expanded Kath's manufacturing facility, which we've been wanting to do for a long time, because then her team could have made more doses. But, um, you know, we used what we had. We, we found ourselves in a situation where it wasn't perfect. We hadn't done all the preparation we would have liked to have done, but we did have an idea about how to do this and we had a lot of experience and we had a great team to work with so we just got started and and did everything that we could could I ask you you mentioned uh about the the feeling there was an inadequate response to uh an Ebola outbreak which did have ramifications in terms of from that point onwards in terms of trying to change the uh as you say basically it was a wake-up call for action in terms of other possible pandemics. In terms of the build-up to this before March 2020, were you already seeing some of those things in action? No, we hadn't seen any more vaccines used in in outbreaks then. So I I think what I learned from that is that the the part of the vaccine development and the vaccine testing against the Ebola outbreak that I was involved in did actually go very, very quickly. So there had been quite a bit of Ebola vaccine development done previously, it wasn't starting from nothing, but it just hadn't really got to the point where vaccines have been tested in clinical trials. So with a team of us in Oxford, we're involved in testing a vaccine in clinical trials for the first time and showing that it was safe to use and gave a good immune response. And then that happened very quickly with a lot of help from the UK regulators. And then we transferred that information along with the vaccine to another research group in Mali, in West Africa, that was right next to the outbreak zone. And they did a trial in Mali as well. And they got very good data very quickly. And what should have happened next is it went into a trial in the outbreak zone to test if the vaccine was effective. At that point, everything stalled because nobody could agree on how to do that trial to test if the vaccine's effective. Because if to know that it is effective, you have to have a trial where some people don't get the vaccine and they do get infected with the disease. And Ebola has a very high fatality rate. And there was a lot of discussion about how it would be ethical to conduct a trial 
And in fact, what happened was there was just a long delay uh, of months before trials actually started. And then the answer turned out to be give some of the people the vaccine straight away and give some of the vaccine to people after three weeks. And then you're looking for differences, um, you know, for infections that happen in the first three weeks in the people who are waiting for the vaccine. So it did mean that people got infected. But that delay of deciding how to do the trial meant that many people got infected in the outbreak zone during the time that they were working out how to do that trial. So what I learned from that was that if we're going to have vaccines against these type of pathogens that spread and we need to contain outbreaks or potentially a pandemic, we need to start planning a long way ahead right from the very beginning. It's no good just planning, let's make a vaccine and and see if we can immunise 50 people and look at what the immune response is like. We have to be planning ahead to how are we going to expand the range of people that we're testing the vaccine in? Because we need to know about older people, not just younger people. We need to know about what it looks like in people who maybe have some health conditions. Um, And then we need to know, does the vaccine actually protect people? Does it stop them getting infected with this disease that we're trying to make the vaccine against? And if we don't plan for all of those stages and plan for the manufacturing, plan to have the vaccine ready to use once we know that it works, then we're going to have these delays. And so we were planning all of the clinical trials right from the very beginning. And it, it was very challenging trying to plan the very early stages at the same time as the later stages and and the manufacturing and then thinking about who was going to make more of the vaccine. AstraZeneca came on board as our partners and they were starting to plan very large scale manufacturing, which Kath was then helping with transferring information to them to help them get set up to do all of that. And they did all of that at risk, at financial risk. So they started manufacturing the vaccine at many sites and it's now at least 20 different sites around the world investing in that, transferring the information uh, and the knowledge so that people could start manufacturing the vaccine before we even knew if it worked. Because if they hadn't done that, and we would, we'd got to um, the end of 2020 and said, yes, we've got a vaccine that's effective and we're ready to use it, and nobody had any vaccine, that wouldn't have been a very good result. So what we took from Ebola is just plan all the way ahead. Don't just plan the first stage because then you'll be late in doing the second stage or the third stage. Kath, you actually mentioned in the book, I think, that that first meeting with AstraZeneca where suddenly you hear that word billion and you go, oh, yeah, now this is suddenly we're, we're going places. And and uh, and I'm fascinated because of the speed of this, actually. I wanted to, to, to ask you, which, again, unfortunately, someone in my own family says this, uh, they have vaccine hesitancy because of the speed of the rollout from, from what they see as the starting point. And you describe this in the book. Can you run us through why it was possible to work so fast to get an effective vaccine out there? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's three things. It's the amount of work that was done in advance, as Sarah said. It's a platform technology that we've used before. We've known it's worked in clinical trials against other diseases, and we have ways that we know that we can manufacture it. So there's a, there's a solid foundation of years and years of work in the research and the manufacturing of these types of vaccines that we can build on. And then it's proceeding at risk. So we use this phrase a lot, proceeding at risk. And that doesn't mean at risk to the quality of the product that we are making or at risk to the effectiveness of the vaccine. It means at financial or reputational risk. So we had, as Sarah just described, she's planning the endpoints of the trials, the late stage trials, the large scale manufacturing 
right back in March before we have any evidence at all that this is a successful vaccine. And that requires commitment to spending large amounts of money on a project that might fail. And it might fail because the vaccine just doesn't work because there's no guarantee in science. So normally you don't do all that once, you do one step at a time. You make a small batch of vaccine, which is what I do. We test it in a small number of volunteers. We make sure that's all going well. We get the results. We write a scientific paper. We go to the funders for say, hey, look at this, it's working really well. Can we have a bit more money to do the next bit? And there's a delay when you write the grant proposal, when you wait for that to be reviewed, when you come back and then you have to hire the people. It takes years sometimes between the first phase of, hey, this looks promising, to the next phase, let's go bigger. And because this time Sarah was persuasive at getting money relatively early on for a high-risk project, she was able to plan the clinical trials, hire the people, do all of this at risk financially so that we could overlap everything. So all of the things normally we would do sequentially, we do them all at once. And that saves a lot of time. And the other idea is, yes, so there's the technology is better. And there's always one other thing that we say, and I can't remember what it is. The money. We got the money. money. The the UK government task force, which was set up towards the end of April, suddenly unlocked a funding stream that is not normally available to academic researchers trying to work on Nipah vaccine outbreaks, yeah, Nipah virus outbreaks. So once the vaccine task force had identified that our project was a goer, had had legs, then money was made available from the UK government to support all of that endeavour. It took till the end of April to to get that funding and that security. And and up until then, to some extent, we were asking for forgiveness, not permission. Well, that's what I I wondered, Sarah, whether should we have in university when people are whatever form of science that they're that they're going into, should there also be another part of that degree, which is actually about how to get money? Because it seems to be so much a case of, you know, the the agony. And as you you say, some some very good scientists have ended up just giving up because they just the agony of trying to get money for research. Yeah, it's it's a very difficult career being an academic researcher I mean you know we love doing the science and we've been talking recently about trying to inspire a new generation of scientists and and show them how interesting it is and you know how fulfilling it is to be able to understand uh, biological processes in our case and then use them to make something that protects people's health and it's a real privilege to be able to do that on the other hand if you have a contract that lasts more than three years you'll be doing well and and at the moment um, it's very difficult to to see what the futures of our teams are going to be because we had to set aside the work that we were doing prior to 2020 and so we haven't done the work that we said we were going to do and uh, next year funding is going to be difficult to come by so yeah having made a successful coronavirus vaccine we're going to be going back to ask for money to keep the team together because a lot of people have contracts that run out in less than nine months so if we can't bring in some more money to keep going then I would lose my research group. So it's it's constant pressure to bring in the money to do what it is that we want to be able to do. And um, I don't see that improving. Isn't that, that to me, that's strange. You know, it, 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 in my ridiculous mind, I would imagine people going, hey, you were the people who did that AstraZeneca vaccine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that you have to, as you point out in the book, and as I've read from other people, keep battling whatever the success is seems to suggest there's something wrong with the way that a great deal of um, of, of science is, is being funded. I think we're also very yeah. inefficient because we spend a lot of our time, you know, trying to 
to think about how we're going to get more money in instead of doing the science. And um, I'm very lucky now because um, as of last year, I do now have a, a long term contract, but that doesn't apply to, to the people in my team. Sorry, Kath, you... you uh... Well, yeah, but there does have to be a mechanism for make sure that we fund good science. Yeah? So it, it's never easy. There's never going to be as much money available in any country as there are ideas that scientists can generate. So, that you know, some grants are always going to have to be unsuccessful, otherwise you're going to need an unlimited pot of money because Sarah and I will keep on coming up with new ideas for you to fund. So, I mean... There does have to be a mechanism by which there is some competitive element to deciding who gets research funding. I think many of us don't feel it's quite working at the moment. Certainly more funding is always a good thing. Yeah? But I think Sarah touched on a really good point there that it, it sometimes is very frustrating, the inefficiency of it. You have to send the same grant to multiple places. And then, I mean, there's lot, you know European grants, Welcome Trust grants, MRC grants. Sometimes it feels that we spend all of our time pushing paperwork work and not enough time pushing pipettes thank you the uh and we're going to move we've got so many questions i'm going to go to the <laughs> questions now uh we're going to start off with sam sam's been uh reading the book and says in the book in uh, you say that in january 2020 you had already designed a vaccine against the pathogen that had been identified earlier that month in china uh sam's question is how often do you react to articles as you did on that occasion and start to develop vaccines what are the key triggers to begin a process so I've been working on vaccines against a number of viruses that we already know about, and they're different virus families, one of them being the MERS Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which is a coronavirus. We'd previously looked at um, maybe different strains of influenza and think about making vaccines against different strains of influenza. But this is the first time we'd actually put into practice uh, plans to start making a new vaccine. It was a relatively new concept. So WHO introduced the concept of what they call disease X, just a few years ago, asking us to think about how we would respond if a new virus emerges and we need to make a vaccine against it quickly. And we knew that the type of technology that we use is very suitable for that, because as we've talked about, we do so much of the work in advance and then we can quickly adapt it to, to make whichever vaccine we want to. So this was the first time we'd actually gone through this process. And when we started it, we didn't know how far it was going to go. It could just have been a fairly short-lived academic exercise because we'd not been successful in getting funding to improve our technology to respond more quickly in a disease X situation. So we thought, well, let's just have a go and, and show people that we actually we could do it. And, and that might mean that we get some more funding next year and we, then we'd be able to go faster. But as it turned out, it wasn't just an academic exercise. It was something that we really needed and we had to just keep um, pushing on um, and go as fast as we could. Thank you. Uh, the next question is just an anonymous attendee. I wondered how uh, many incidents of side effects to the vaccine are to be expected normally in uh, an event like this? So all vaccines that come out for emergency youth authorization are now being surveyed by the public health authorities in the in the countries that, that, that those vaccines are being deployed. Yeah. So the, the vaccine team ourselves, we're not responsible for collecting that data. It's something that is done obviously independently of us. It's completely unbiased. And that information is then fed out to healthcare professionals and to decision makers to decide about whether the side effects that are seen are directly related to vaccination. And so it is clear that there are some very rare side effects that are happening now with pretty much all of the vaccines that are in use across the world against COVID. And that's obviously unfortunate. But as we try to stress in the book, no 
intervention is risk free and not intervening, not taking an action is also not risk free. And so those very rare side effects are unwanted, of course, but if they're unavoidable, we have to figure out how we take those into account when deploying vaccines in populations that clearly really need them because COVID is a very, very serious disease. Sarah, do you have something to add on that? Well, on any vaccine, uh, when you get vaccinated, you'll be given a leaflet that describes the side effects that you might expect. And some of them are quite common. So it's common to have pain at the injection site. Not everybody gets it, but quite a lot of people will have a sore arm. It's quite common uh, with some vaccines to have a short-lived fever or chills. Um, And all of this is described. uh, And we get that information from the clinical trials that we do. So by the time the phase three trials are completed, tens of thousands of people have been immunized. And all of these um, side effects in in the first week or so after vaccination have been recorded. So we know how frequently they affect people. And we know that they tend to affect older people less than younger people. As the immune system ages a bit, you don't get so um, many of these side effects after vaccination. But then it's not until the vaccine is used in very large numbers that there's any hope of picking up the really rare adverse events after vaccination. And that's what the reporting systems are for. So the MHRA has the yellow card scheme and and people will send in reports. Uh, And through these reporting systems, it's possible to identify any really rare uh, side effects after vaccination. And then, as Kath says, assess which populations we should continue using the vaccine in. I'm interested because you you talk a little bit uh, in the book about, you know, when vaccination becomes a political football as well. And I presume there is that issue where because the news is about novelty, if you have three cases in two million people, those three of, of a bad reaction to a vaccine, they become front page news. And then I presume it can be quite a different political juggling act. How do you juggle actually just saying this is what happens when this number of people are vaccinated? And it's terrible if three people have this reaction. But you have to look at the statistics. That's the job of the regulators to look at these statistics and then the um, the, the policymakers who decide how to, to use the vaccine. You will get all kinds of things happening after vaccination. I mean, in the Moderna vaccine trial in the US, a volunteer was struck by lightning. And nobody thinks that that lightning strike was anything to do with vaccination. And what's happening with these reporting systems is that you record everything that happens to people after vaccination. So we did one clinical trial in Baltimore where um, the most frequent serious adverse event after vaccination was gunshot wounds. Again, nothing to do with vaccination, but that particular population, there were people turning up with gunshot wounds. Uh, In Oxford, it tends to be cycling injuries. Sometimes pregnancy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it depends where you are in the world. The kind of things that happen to people also happen to people when they've just been vaccinated. And then it can be really difficult sometimes to work out if those medical events have got anything to do with the vaccines or not. And that's why it takes a while to kind of build up a picture, because with anything um, that goes wrong, it's more likely to happen if you're older than if you're younger and the adverse events happen to people all the time. That's why we start doing clinical trials with younger people. It's not that vaccines are dangerous to old people, it's that older people are dangerous to vaccine trials. Because if you start doing your vaccine trials in people over the age of 70 who are more likely to have adverse events in their life, generally, then you can't tell whether those strokes or heart attacks or whatever it is that happened to people had anything to do with the vaccination or whether they were going to happen anyway. So we always start with young, healthy people who are not likely to have things going wrong with them. And then 
that gives us a better opportunity to look at what the vaccine's doing before we then move on to testing the vaccine in older people at a slightly later stage of the trial. So it's always difficult to disentangle something that's going to happen normally in life and something that's happening as a consequence of the vaccination. And that's one of the things that the people looking at the reports coming in have to try to do. Where would you recommend people go in terms of the most uh, accessible and evidence-based sources for them when they might be perhaps worried about seeing a, a headline in a newspaper? Public Health England are very good. The MHOA website, I mean, they're a bit dense and dry, but they're good. Somebody who's very good at talking about risk and how we assess risk is a, a columnist in The Guardian, an academic in Cambridge called David Spiegel. Do you know? David Spiegelhalter, yeah, he's great. David yeah. Spiegelhalter. I find him very clear on, on, on thinking about how we perceive risk and how we balance risks in our life. And Sarah and I try to try to touch on this in the book that we are surrounded by risk. Sarah cycles to work every day across Oxford traffic and up the hill in busy bus lanes. Um, and she does that knowing there's a risk for that, yeah? Cyclists die on the roads far too frequently in this country. But she does it because the benefit to her is, is high. It's good to get some exercise, get out in the fresh air, think about new vaccine design on the way to work. So that's, that's her risk benefit, yeah? It's a risky thing to do, but she chooses to do it. Um, because it has benefits and so that's a story that we tell in the book but also that if it's snowing Sarah does not get on her bicycle because the risk changes because it's way more slippery and you're much more likely to fall under that bus so we're trying to get people to understand that there is not one view of risk and so there is not one number for whether you should or should not get vaccinated depending on the the rate the incidence rate for a specific side effect because it depends on the likelihood that you will have that side effect, which you obviously don't know, the amount of fact of pathogen that's circulating in the population, because if you're more likely to catch COVID, you know, you really do want to be vaccinated against it. And there is also this issue, isn't there, of, I, th I think you touched on it, and it is a hard topic to talk about, but the people that have a, have a side effect, and we can treat them much better now, because we understand them much more, so that's good. People that have side effects are, are people that we know about. They have names. They're our family. They're our, they're our relatives. We can pinpoint those. But the people who have benefited from the vaccination programme, and Public Health England say last week that 30,000 people in this country are alive today who would not be alive, 30,000 are alive today that would not be alive in England because of the vaccination programme, not ours, ours and Pfizer and Moderna. And those 30,000 people, we don't know who they are, so they don't have a, a face to, to put against that story. And it's very hard for us to remember the 30,000 unknown people who are still here when we know about the few that have had an, an, an adverse event. And, and we, we're very bad, I think, at, at balancing risk in our own minds. But we're trying to do our best to explain it, and others also try very hard to to put their view across. But it's not our job to tell you to get a vaccine. It's our job to give you the information that supports you to make what we think is the right decision. But we're not instructors, yeah? The regulators and the approval bodies are there to give the right advice to people. It's not our job. We just do the science bit. 
Well, it's excellent. You've been very prescient as well, because the next question was, yeah. I feel Sorry, like... And I talk too much. I always talk too much. No, 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 it's perfect. No, you don't at all. But the, the question was, I feel like rational arguments to my older relatives about how statistically insignificant the dangers of vaccination are are not cutting through. What can I do? And I think you've given the answer to that, including the image there of, 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 of the bus in a snowstorm as well. Uh, another anonymous attendee would like to know, can we expect more pandemics of this scale or worse in the future? Uh, will vaccination development get quicker with time? And I suppose we could add to that as well, that the worry about the number of variants, and as some people have been writing, the, the, the risk there will become a point where a vaccine is no longer nearly as effective. So will there be more pandemics in the future? Yes, there will be. Uh, we always expect another influenza pandemic. We just don't know when it's going to happen. But there are lots of other viruses out there. And as we've seen, they can now spread so quickly because um, you know, there's more contact between people and animals. Uh, a lot of the, the viruses are, are normally in animals and then they spill over into human populations and then very dense populations of people, lots of travel around the world. So the viruses travel with the people and that means they spread quickly. So, yes, there will be um, other pandemics. We don't know exactly when. And I think we will be able to make vaccines even more quickly next time because all the vaccine developers have learned this time um, and you know, it, it should go faster in the future. But really, we would like to be able to control things at a stage where it's an outbreak rather than a pandemic. If we can get the vaccine development to the point where we can um, stop it spreading around the world, that would be perfect. But for diseases like influenza and the coronaviruses, respiratory pathogens that are transmitted so easily and spread so quickly, it's going to be very difficult to, to contain them. So we have to plan for more pandemics. In terms of um, variant vaccines, the concern now is that if we don't get vaccines everywhere in the world, there's going to continue being transmission of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And when you get transmission between people, that's when you have the opportunity for new mutations to arise and new variants to be selected. And it's possible that um, we end up with variants that are less related to the original virus, which is, of course, what we use to make the vaccine against. So it could be that the vaccine becomes less effective. I don't think it's going to suddenly become very much less effective, but we've already got a problem with more transmissible viruses. So the vaccine is actually highly effective against the Delta variant. We know that Public Health England has published the data on that. Um, for our vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine. But the problem is that that virus spreads so quickly. So it's very much easier to catch that virus than it was the original one. And it's spreading through the population very rapidly. So even if the people who've been vaccinated only have very mild disease, there's still an awful lot of them. So we're still seeing transmission of that virus. And it means that they're for people in the population who aren't vaccinated, they have a very high risk of exposure to the virus because there's so much transmission. And if they're not vaccinated, they have the risk of getting severe disease, which is going to put more people in hospital. There's a, a, another a similar question from the one before. Uh, my cousin says it's not natural to get uh, a vaccine. Um, I just wondered about, sometimes it seems like the, the voices of those against vaccines are very loud, but actually talking to people out there i've i've heard that you know there's not there's been some vaccine hesitancy but overall there's been a very good uptake um i wonder how you feel about that cat i mean vaccine uptake in this country is is very high i think that 
we have been since the beginning trying to explain as we go along what it is that we're doing and, and the rationale behind it and the risks and the benefits involved. And I, I think also, I mean, of course, we had an enormous COVID outbreak in this country. We have more than 130,000 people dead. And so compared to other countries, we have seen firsthand how awful this disease is. And so I think that that probably maps onto the fact that as a, as a society, we have realised that for us, the way out of this pandemic is via vaccination. Um, and we now start to see the, the differences in the rates of mortality that are occurring because people are vaccinated. We're not out of the woods yet. We only have just over 50% of our adult population fully protected. But I suspect that some of the reason that vaccine hesitancy has been dropping is because all of us have experienced firsthand how serious this disease is. And I hope that some of it is also to do with the fact that some of us as scientists and, and our media has actually been very sensible. We've had a lot of great science reporting in this country over the last year. I mean, yeah, they've been the odd silly headline and, and those are the ones that we have struggled with. But in general, I think the, the quality of, of science reporting, trying to explain what the disease is, what the healthcare measures are that we can take, are that, you know, I think we've all understood a lot more about this disease than any other in history. And our vaccine will be the most studied in history. And all of that data is publicly available. We're putting that out in, in open access journals for people to read. So I hope we start to have built some trust. And to, because we tell the truth, we're not hiding anything. And I hope that people are, are responding to that. But mostly, I think it's because we saw the worst of COVID can do. And maybe we can just come back to what's not natural about vaccination. So we get viral infections all the time, um, actually less in the last year because all, we've all been um, secluded. But, you know, we get colds, we get flu, uh, we get tummy bugs. They're all viral infections, natural viral infections. What we're doing with a vaccine is giving a very limited, very controlled viral infection that can't spread in the body is just enough to stimulate the immune system to make a response that will then protect you when you counter the real virus. So it's a it's a very natural process, but it's much safer than getting infected with the with the virus itself. I, I don't know why somebody would would dismiss vaccination as unnatural. I think they need to understand how natural processes work. We interact with um, other with microorganisms all the time. That, that's a very natural thing to do. Yeah, it's why you don't get chickenpox twice, yeah, because your immune system has seen chickenpox once and has learned and therefore is protecting you against chickenpox. And that's all we're doing with vaccination, showing something to your immune system so that it recognises it again. Also, but without making you ill. Without making you ill. <laughs> yeah. the, uh, um, this is a lovely question, which is uh, basically you're being com compared to uh, Apollo 11, which I like <laughs> Um, uh, and, and justifiably, I think. Do, do you think this pandemic and the inspirational work you and other biologists have done this year will inspire a new generation to go into STEM? Um, Sarah? Well, I hope so. Um, and we've had very good response from schools, uh, lots of people getting in touch to say that, you know, that they have newfound interest in science. Now we need to sort out the careers for scientists, because as we talked about <laughs> earlier, that's still pretty difficult. So we, we want a new generation of scientists and, and lots of uh, good careers for them to go into. Brilliant. Kath, do you want to add anything? 
I think that's right. And I hope that people realize from some of the stories that come out that we tell and from other trials, that science is a really diverse and interesting career. You get to work with all kinds of people. So you get to work with mathematicians and statisticians and engineers and business people. It can also be a business. And there's lots of need for all kinds of skills and therefore all kinds of people to come into science. Um, and yeah, you know, Sarah and I will always complain about how tough it is, but we wouldn't do any other job, would we, Sarah? This is it's a <laughs> job to do. It's a really interesting job, yeah? And so we want lots of bright people with diverse skill sets to think, yeah, that could be for me. Brilliant. And uh, this is an interesting one from Marion. Marion wonders, do you think in an ideal world that different amounts of vaccine should be given to people with very different body weights? Now, I know nothing about how, how that would cath. Are you able to answer No, that? that's Sarah. Um, yeah, no, the answer is basically no. <laughs> That's not how it, it needs to work. It's it's not like a drug. So we can just have a standard dose for people with different body. It's one, one thing that we might need to think about for intramuscular injections is the length of the needle, because you do need to get it into the muscle. And with COVID vaccines, people have been thinking about using short needles because you lose vaccine in the needle and we don't want to waste any. That's the only thing that you, where you might want to think about people with different body weights. Um, another uh, rather pragmatic question, which is, uh, does the effectiveness of the vaccine disappear after a period of time? Do we need to get vaccinated every year going forward, Sarah? So it's, I don't think it's going to be every year. We're, we're just starting to publish some data on the maintenance of the immune responses six months after vaccination is looking very, very good that data is already out as a preprint. Uh, we will be tracking it. It's, I think older people will probably need to be revaccinated more often than younger people because they won't keep the immune responses as, as long. But no, we're not going to be seeing the whole population needing to be revaccinated every year. And uh, this is Lois. Uh, Kath, we'll start with you because I'm not sure how much you have baked uh, during this time, Sarah, though you do mention some. What was the favourite thing you baked in Baking Club? Oh, yeah. So Zoom family baking, either Sunday mornings or Saturday mornings or whenever we could all get together. Um, we had some true baking disasters. I am never attempting to make gnocchi again. Never, never. I Because um, that turns into potato soup and it's completely impossible. We made some very good scones, simple kind of old fashioned recipes. Very good. Um, and I think I'll say, though, I don't know if I'm allowed. We made Cornish pasties, but we weren't in Cornwall. So I think we just have to call them. Cornish style pasties, but they were really tasty. We well, see, I could make this a double whammy now and ask you exactly what you did with your scones. Did you put the jam first or the cream first? Oh, no, that's easy because you split it in half and you put cream then jam on one half and jam then cream on the other and everybody's happy. Yeah, well, I, I, I think, yeah, that, that's for that. The, yeah. <laughs> the balance of the universe is... is uh, <laughs> thank you so much. We didn't have time to answer uh, all of the questions, but they were they are answered in this uh, Vaxxers, which is uh, available now and is filled with... Uh, we had quite a few. I hope we've covered most of the questions there because there were quite a few that were covering um, similar ground. But thank you both uh, very much. It is uh, it did incredible work. And I think that that sense that people have of carrying with them something that of human achievement of human imagination and of scientific endeavor which has changed the possibilities of so many people uh is uh, is a wonderful thing so thank you both for uh, your time tonight and uh, i hope to see you again at some point thank, thank you very much this week's episode starred sarah gilbert and Catherine green it was presented by robin ince the producer was me bas christodoulou and the editor was john daugherty as ever, if you enjoyed the show, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
and visit us at howtoacademy.com for our upcoming live events and live streams with more of the world's leading scientists. Thanks for listening.